Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Hi, everybody. Welcome or welcome back. Uh, my name's Britt. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Sunridge, and I'm going to let you know that uh, this is probably the last pre-recording of a message that uh, we'll be doing because we're moving back in our building on April 18th. Our service ch- time is going to change to 10 o'clock, but we're going to have uh, children's ministry and nursery and infants, and uh, we're really excited about that, even though I'm personally going to miss our outside services. have been absolutely beautiful outside, uh, but we know that Temecula summer is coming, so uh, we're ready to move in. We hope that you are as well. And uh, we're about 80% filled with our uh, children's ministry uh, volunteers. Uh, We've set up a rotation where you can be on once in every four weeks. Uh, Some home groups have jumped on this and are serving together. But uh, if you haven't done, if you haven't volunteered yet and you're just kind of sitting on the fence, now's the time to do it. Just like uh, go to our website, sunrichchurch.org and and sign up, it's gonna be super fun and it's a once a month uh, commitment. Also, um, we're starting a new series today. We're gonna be studying the book of Ruth. And one of the things that we've done during the pandemic, uh, especially when we've started to pre-record our messages is allow the the speaker to have a little more time. It's like, it's basically unlimited time. Um, And so if you're wondering like, does, are all the messages at Sunridge this long, uh, they aren't, but this one's gonna be a little longer and I'm just gonna ask your permission uh, to take my time as I go through the setting of uh, the book of Ruth. And uh, if you uh, tire of my voice or you know your schedule runs out, you can always click it off. That's the advantage of a podcast or even a live stream or online uh, uh, video. So, uh, but on Sunday morning, we tend to chop some things out so that we can connect better with one another. And, and do other things. So I'm going to start in Ruth chapter one. I'm just going to read the first five verses. That's what we're going to look at today. Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The book of Ruth is truly a masterful story. And this four-chapter little novella has captured the hearts of Bible readers from all walks of life and over the ages. 
And it's not just an easy read that gives us a break from some of the more difficult books in the Bible. There's something that's very normal about this book, but it's also extraordinary at the same time. First of all, it's such a profoundly human story of people who are very real to us. They're not just Bible superheroes. They seem more down to earth. So we easily identify with the characters and often we see ourselves in them. For instance, Naomi, as we'll see, faces tragedy. She's battered by life. And it's easy for us to just think about the blows that life delivers uh, to us. Ruth, when we look at her, we admire her courage, her commitment, her cleverness. And of course, the world would be a lot better off if there were many more Ruths among us. Then there's Boaz, a man who is uh, respected among other men. And yet he's also compassionate and generous. And he finds love in the later years of his life. And then there's the part that most of us know about Ruth, the love story. And of course, we all love the love story or the love affair between Ruth and Boaz. Uh, and the way their romance proceeds from the very first meeting, they're an unlikely couple who surprise others and themselves in, um, in what happens to them in their relationship. But over the next seven weeks, what we want to do as we teach through Ruth is to rescue this story from the Hallmark version of, of the story. No slam on Hallmark. I've done that before. Uh, I won't do that today. As we go through, we're going to try to unshackle this story from the cultural chains that for generations have kept the story uh, or the power of this story imprisoned. There's romance, that's true, but there's also so much more going on here. It's an unconventional book about an unconventional woman named Ruth. And she emerges not as your typical Sandra Bullock or Julia Roberts character awaiting the arrival of Hugh Grant and now they live happily ever after and that's the whole key to the story. Ruth, Ruth is much more than that. She's gutsy and innovative and determined and she elevates herself or discards cultural protocol, even common sense really when she commits herself to Naomi in the way that she does, and her acceptance of Naomi's God, Yahweh, is much more than some type of verbal assent or commitment. She lives out an uncommon faith in circumstances that would devastate most of our faiths. There's a reason this short little book has made its way into the canon of Scripture, because without Ruth, the story of Scripture would truly be incomplete. God is doing something here in these four chapters. And if we can grasp it, it has the potential to reel something about him that no other book does. And these four chapters will tell us so much about God, ourselves, and, to how, and how to live as Jesus followers in a less than perfect world, and sometimes a world that is far from perfect. First of all, I want to look at the setting and uh, this is in your notes. The story occurs during the time of the judges. In verse one, it says, in the days when the judges ruled. And it's called judges. They're called judges. When we hear that, we think of robes and gavels, but it really means ruler and an unconventional kind of ruler as we would normally think. 
when we see judge or judges in this context, this period, it's talking about specific people who hold the title, I guess, of judge, and then a time period as well. So let's look at the period in which this story occurs. If you took history through the lens of Israel, first of all, you would have creation. And then there's the patriarchal period, which uh, you may know these names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are kind of the fathers of the Hebrew people. And then they're taken into Egypt and, of course, in slavery. And then there's the exodus led by Moses and Joshua. And as they come into the land that God has promised them, we have the period of the judges. Following judges, there's what is known as the united monarchy. And you may know these names, Saul and David and Solomon, uh, David's son. They are, the, the entire nation is united under their uh, rule and reign. And eventually, though, the kingdom divides, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom of the Hebrew people, and then eventually they are taken into captivity by the Persian Babylonian Empire. So the setting of this story is in Judges. So it's some time in between Joshua's death and the coronation of King Saul. But we later, when we get to the end of chapter 4, David is mentioned in the genealogy, King David, uh, at the end. And that that tells us that the story is being told sometime later. The author of Ruth is unknown. But it's kind of saying, like, the story is kind of like back in the day or once upon a time. That's the period in which Ruth lives. Then there's the people, the people that are the judges. They're not kings or politically elected, or even officially the leaders, uh, but they're just individuals that God used as kind of the man or the woman as it is uh, for the time. And it's really fascinating. I've always been fascinated by uh, the period of the judges and how they lead and how they emerge as the leader of the day. So that makes them super interesting to me. Because they seem to have like a particular gift or skill that is needed for this period. They're all recognized as leaders politically, morally, militarily, spiritually. All the ways that uh, a people who are not completely united can be led. You might even be familiar with some of the names like uh, Samson. He was a judge. Or there are lesser knowns like Othniel. Or Ehud, great story, by the way. Or Shamgar, that's a great name for your son. Moms, I'm sorry that I just did that to you. But man, how cool would it be to have a son named Shamgar after you, after you read the story? I'll stop getting myself in trouble. Save your emails. Uh, and then even one of the judges is a woman, Deborah. And that's such a remarkable story. And that contributed to our understanding as the elders went through God's intention of women's roles, our study of three years, because Deborah is clearly recognized as the leader of the nation. She's even over the general of the army. And then there's Gideon. You might be familiar with that name. We did a series on that. I'd invite you to just to check it out in our archives because it's likely that Ruth is, is occurring, this, this story, during the time that Gideon is the judge. And we know that there was an extreme famine during Gideon's time. And then the genealogy 
of chapter four, like I mentioned at the end, indicates that Ruth is the great grandmother of David. So on a timeline, this would all fit. The period of the judges and and living in this time, it's a fearful time. It's not a well-organized society. So that means there's political unrest, there's international tensions, there's racism. Uh, It's a chaotic time. And so it's teeming with violent invasions, apostate religions, lawlessness, and even tribal civil wars. So, you know, in a, in a world like that, it's easy to fall through the cracks. Worse, it's, you know, you're likely to be pillaged, uh, your village, or enslaved, or forced into the sex trade, or, you know, even just murdered outright, killed in battle. And to be vulnerable this time, everybody's vulnerable, to be, but to be vulnerable particularly as a woman during this period without the protection that is provided by a man would be absolutely horrifying. you're extremely exposed and you would be helpless. That's the timeline that we're looking at when Ruth occurs. Now I'm gonna switch gears and ask you, have you seen like a video or on the news of what's called a wave pool or a surf park? You know, where they make the wave mechanically. There's lots of ways that they do this. Some have a foil or some have a plunger that pushes or some just release a bunch of water, but they all generate this initial energy that carries through to the end. It's like the perfect consistent wave over and over again. You don't have to fight for it. You pay to be there. And it's on my bucket list to do as a surfer one day. The book of Ruth is kind of like a wave machine. All the energy of the story, like the starting of a wave in a, in a surf park, is generated in these first, first five verses that we just read a few moments ago. And as we go through the story, you're going to see how all the movement goes back to the upheaval that all starts, this energy push uh, that starts here in the first five verses. And the, and the wave of the story pushes through the story throughout. And so you could look at it this way, and this is the way I've titled this introductory message on Ruth. It's kind of like cause and effect. You can see that. Um, there's two questions then that we're going to address in kind of this first message on Ruth. Number one is, what are those energy driving factors? What is the cause of the entire story. And then secondly, what themes do they create? What waves carry through the story because of that initial energy? That's the effect, so cause and effect. So let's talk a little bit about those drivers of the story or the cause, there's two. Number one is famine. In Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled, the writer says that there was a famine in the land. Now, back then, similar to today, famine can be caused by weather. I mean, this is a region that is affected by a lack of rain and sometimes extreme heat. It could be caused by pestilence or poor planting or marauding tribes who steal all your grain or your livestock, like Gideon's story. And during Judges, uh, this period, human beings are living on a razor's edge. And so... Like today, famine drives migration. You know, people, people migrate for a better life, for education, for opportunity. But this migration is all about survival. And here we have families who are moving. 
to different regions in search of food. It's kind of ironic that Bethlehem means house of bread, which is where this story starts off. And it tells you a little bit about how desperate this situation is. You have a Jewish family who's relocating from Bethlehem to Moab, a region that is east of the Jordan and the Dead Sea. And so they're not just going to a different culture, like this would be something fun to try for the kids. They are going to a land which, which is comprised of their arch enemies. It's a different religion. There are different values. And so they are, it is foreign to them in every sense. And the famine is personal here. It's not a faceless tragedy in the story. We meet the family that is directly impacted by it. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So these people in the story, they're named. It's a man named Elimelech. He has a wife named Naomi, and they have sons, Malon and Kilion. And so the author's pulling us into the story by letting us see that these are real people. And there's another thing that makes the story personal as well. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, the writer says. And although we can't be certain, it's best to understand that Ephrathites is describing a clan of Israelites who descended from Ephrath, which was Caleb's wife, and they settled in Bethlehem. So in fact, at one time, Bethlehem is called Ephrath. Now, when the writer says that these are Ephrathites from Bethlehem, he's not saying the same thing twice, but he's making a distinction. Because you could be of the clan of Ephrath, but not reside in Bethlehem, the normal migration that would occur. But saying that Elimelech's family are Ephrathites from Bethlehem, the author is probably saying, that these are aristocrats. They are one of the first families of Bethlehem. And this adds to the devastation that this family is going through. See, they are not the people that this happens to. And so this tells us how widespread the famine actually is because it is reaching well-established and well-healed families. Many of you can remember the recession of 2007, 2008, and then, of course, what we just went through with COVID. And I can remember in, in 08 and 09, some of the families that called Sunridge home. It was remarkable, some of the families that had to visit food banks in our town. Families that had never, ever experienced something like that. So that recession cut deep and it just made the, that recession feel so much more real to us. And so here, the famine is hitting real people. They have names. They are neighbors. They are friends. They're co-workers. And the setting, which is in this tumultuous and vulnerable time, is now exacerbated and taken to a whole other level by the famine. And that's a catalyst to the story. It's the cause of everything that's happening. It's driving the story. The other driver is death, but more specifically, and this is number two in your notes, 
the men are wiped out. The way the story begins is typical for the day. And for most of the stories that we read in the Bible, it says the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Joab and they lived there. And that introduction to the story kind of gives you the impression that we're about to read a story about men. It's Elimelech and his sons, Malon and Kilion, but then a twist is introduced in verse three. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And then they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So even at this point, by verse four, it's still kind of a conventional story. It's a tragedy, but it's conventional. But then it goes on. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband. And then within 10 short years, their sons die. So within the first five verses of a four chapter book, all the men die. Now, anytime a woman is mentioned in the Bible, something unusual is happening, just like we just saw at the, at the resurrection, all the women that are there But when all the men are erased from the story, something extraordinary is happening. It's because, and and here, Naomi's life without a man is described as left. Naomi was left without. Left without her two sons and a husband. And, you know, that word left, we'll see much more about what that entirely means. But I think you get it because... um, Many of you are listening to this message or watching online. You know what it feels like to be left if you were divorced, man or woman, or one of your, your husband or wife died, or maybe when your parents passed, or when you were sent out on your own and you just felt alone or out of work. You, you feel left, left behind, left without, as the NIV says. So all of us have felt at risk or vulnerable at some time, some of us more than others. But in biblical times, the four most vulnerable demographics were the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the alien. And Naomi and Ruth managed to hit the trifecta on those four. They get three out of four. And so in the reader's minds at this time, when the story is is written, the story is over. Naomi and her daughters-in-law are done. That's true of the people who read the story and it was certainly true in Naomi's mind and her daughter-in-law's. See, this is not an American book. It's not happening, happening in 2021 in the Temecula Valley. There's no social safety net. This isn't just, got, they're gonna have a hard time and struggle or life will be hard. In the male-dominated culture of Ruth's day, These three widowed, sunless women, they have no value. It's not just they don't have any food or a man in their life. They have no value. And so their story is over. And so when Ruth has women at the center of the book, this is so unconventional and remarkable. But get this. This is when the real story of Ruth begins. 
Because you have these drivers of the story, these waves that are generated throughout the story caused by this, by the famine and these deaths. We're going to see some themes throughout. We're going to see the effect of, these, of the famine and the deaths of the men in their lives. Themes are ideas, big ideas or concepts that weave through the story at the macro level. There are more closer up stories and personal stories that we're gonna be looking at, but the themes are the context in which those personal stories happen. It's like the wave pool again. And they're gonna come up again and again. And I've identified at least three themes of, that, are, that we find in Ruth or the effects of these causes. And um, this is the last part of uh, the teaching. Number one, theme number one is Ruth underscores the plight of immigrants and refugees. See, what you need to get is this entire story takes place in the context of immigration. Naomi is a Jew moving to a Muslim country and Ruth is a, Muslim, uh, uh, Ruth is a Muslim moving to a Jewish country. And so their plight is very similar to that of the undocumented immigrant today. And it's central to the story and to our characters, their challenges, their obstacles, their bravery, their desires and dreams. A famine drives this family and deaths into being immigrants. Now researchers uh, describe why people immigrate in, in push and pull terms. The push are, are the factors that drive people from their homeland. It can be famine, like here, or violence, or war, or lack of opportunity. But then there's a pull factor as well. The pull factor is what draws them to a particular region or country. It could be food or shelter, education, freedom, jobs, asylum, reuniting with family that's already there. A uh, Gallup, putty, uh, Gallup study found that 13% of the world's adults would move permanently to another country if they could. And of that number, the highest percentage, 23%, said the United States was their destination of choice. And second on that list is the UK with about 7%. So this study dubbed America as the undisputed world's most desired nation for immigrants. Evidently, the American dream is a really big pull. Now, unless you're a Native American or your ancestors were forced here by African slave traders, we're all ancestors of people who chose to be immigrants and were pulled and probably pushed to this place that we call America. I just recently did Ancestry.com. I sent in my spit and I found out what my roots were. Some of it was no surprise, but um, I really wanted to have some Scottish and Irish in me, in particular Scottish, because my son-in-law, uh, yeah, one of my son-in-laws was like 26% Scottish and I just wanted to be like him. You know, I wanted to be able to wear a kilt lift big rocks and toss big wooden poles someday. But this idea of um, being an immigrant and that the, the story's happening in this context is a timely conversation for our day. And, you know, I, I realize that when we talk about 
refugees and immigrants today, it, it can be so overwhelming. There's so much going on in the world. It can be numbing. Uh, it can be dehumanizing. And even in many cases, I hear hostility uh, directed at immigrants and what refugees. I think part of it is because we're seeing the largest number of displaced people since World War II. Worldwide, there are 26 million people currently that are refugees, and it's not getting better. It has doubled, in fact, in the last 10 years. The largest refugee camp in the world is in Bangladesh. And between it, this complex of uh, different camps, housing mainly uh, the Rohingya people, who are an ethnic uh, Muslim minority group that fled persecution or fleeing persecution in Myanmar, uh, which is a predominantly Buddhist country in Southeast Asia, um, the atrocities there are horrific. And this network of camps currently housed, can you take a stab at it? 880,000 people. And they literally, they have nowhere to go. Then there's what's happening at our border right now as I speak. We're having the largest influx in 20 years. And we know nobody can seem to fix it. No level of cruelty or even laissez-faire chaos has been able to solve it. And it's so politicized now, it seems even less likely to be fixed. If it was easy to fix, it would have been fixed or solved a long time ago. But those sheer numbers, when I say that to you, I know it's eliciting a response in you, as even when I read it, it's like, how can I wrap my brain around that? It's numbing, it's dehumanizing. But here's what Ruth does. Ruth rehumanizes immigrants for us. Because we love Ruth and Naomi. And sometimes just knowing people in a people group, it changes your view of that group of people or that lifestyle. You may not change your perspective on it. You might not change your doctrinal position or your philosophical ideas about it. But it often changes the way we feel about it and the way we talk about it. It gives us compassion for people. And the fact that Ruth is an immigrant puts flesh, biblical flesh, on this word. Unquestionably, God has a special heart, a special place in his heart for immigrants and for refugees. In Leviticus 19.33, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I mean, that's scripture right there. It says that we're to love them as ourselves, as our neighbor. And the reasoning behind it is that you were a foreigner too. As I mentioned, most of us are immigrants or come from immigrants. And puts a fine point on it at the end in case you didn't catch it. I am the Lord. I have the authority to say this because every human being bears the image of God no matter where they come from. And undoubtedly, Jesus leaned toward the marginalized and the outcasts 
and the foreigners. And if we are his followers, his apprentices under his way, shouldn't we? What we admire about Ruth takes place in her life as an immigrant. And Ruth is going to elicit that compassion in us and you won't be able to help yourself. And that will be good. Second theme of Ruth is that Ruth exposes the effects of patriarchy. Now let me be clear about what patriarchy is. Patriarchy is a social system that privileges men over women. Under patriarchy, a woman's value comes from the men in her life. It could be her father or her husband or her ability to bear her husband's sons. And patriarchy is most certainly the backdrop to the story of Ruth. And it's going to affect the story throughout. It is a theme. And that's what makes the story and Ruth's accomplishments even more powerful. Again, it's important to remember that when we read the Bible, we're not reading a book that was written in 2021 America. And the consequence, even though the consequences of patriarchy linger today, it's nothing like it was at the time of Ruth. And so to the audience then, as they read this story, it's unconventional, even shocking, that a woman would be so centric to the story. Ruth is a book where women are the central figures. Ruth is the story's protagonist, its leading character. The Ruth story is told from Naomi's point of view. And the, narr- the narrator writes of Naomi's husbands, her sons, her daughters-in-law, her losses, her God, her return to Bethlehem, her people, her relative, and the land that she's selling all through the view of Naomi. And so we're, the readers are observing the events as they relate to her. And we also even view God in this book through the eyes of a woman. In the story, Ruth is an azer. It's a word that we learned in our series called Half the Church, which you have not listened to that. You should, you should listen to that in our archives. The actual Hebrew word, azer, is, uh, is used to describe Eve as Adam's helper. But as we learned in Half the Church, that word means nothing close to the way that we describe Adam's helper or, or a, uh, a helper suitable to Adam, nor is it ever used in the Bible in that way. An azer describes God's action on behalf of Israel. It's the most often used uh, way the word is used in the Old Testament. And God, representing God, defending Israel is not a lesser role. And and azer's most often used in a military context in kind of like as a warrior. So in spite of the fact that Ruth lives in a day where she is an undervalued woman, she is a powerful force. She is an azer in the life of her mother-in-law and eventually her husband, Boaz. The last theme that I want to point out is that Ruth reveals the loyal love of God in action. You know, it's easy, especially when you're a new Christian, or maybe this is me because I was younger when I became a Christian, to have kind of like a fairy tale God. That, that life is always perfect for good Christians. There's a word that appears three times in this book, the Hebrew word kased, 
And uh, in your note sheet, it shows where it is used. Uh, and, but the, it, so it's mentioned, that word is used three times in the book, but that concept is used throughout the story of Ruth. It simply means the loyal love. It means loyal love. And I'm going to dedicate one entire message just to that word. You know, we learn a lot about um, people in the Bible. But the Bible is always teaching us something about God as well. And Ruth is a story about the real world where people suffer loss. They have nowhere to go. Little options. And yet God shows up. God shows up with loyal love in the grittiness of life. His love is loyal. If you're not a Christian and you have all these concepts, and I would likely say misconceptions, about what it means to be a Jesus follower or what is required, you know, like this idea that you have to clean your act up to get right with God in some way or to, to, to perform for God in order for God to love you. Nothing can be further from the truth. His love is loyal. And it doesn't matter uh, how far you think you are from God. God's love is still loyal to you and just like the story in the prodigal son, he's waiting like a father for that son, that, that child that has wandered off of their own volition. He's waiting for you apprehensively and looking on the horizon, waiting for you to return. So you should do it. In the story of Ruth, we see that God cares. He cares about widows like Naomi and Ruth. Women whom loss has reduced to poverty and vulnerability at a whole other level. And not only that, but life has stripped away all the things that culture values, their dignity, their success, their sense of purpose. And the story of Ruth demonstrates not only that God cares about people, that the world is forgotten, but he also chooses to work through them. Ordinary people invisible people like Ruth, like Naomi, and even Boaz. So God is not just a God who comforts us or holds us or helps us to stand. You're going to see in the story that he chooses to use us to represent him in the midst of our own vulnerability. We are all image bearers of our creator. So to wrap this whole introduction up is, is just to say that there is a cause and effect in this story of Ruth. And there's a cause and effect that is taking place in our lives, in my life, your life, in the life of your family. Maybe you've already, as I've been talking, you've been able to identify with like some of the, the waves, the powerful waves that were generated in your life and in your situation. And you can see those things, those themes carrying through your story. And you can see how those drivers, those causes are affecting your present day. It could be addiction in your family or your own addiction. It could be poverty or lack of education. Maybe you're listening and you're an immigrant or your parents were an immigrant. It could be simple dysfunctions in the normal everyday family. 
Or maybe it's just that you happen to be born in a certain place, in a certain land, or with a certain skin color, or a certain people group, or maybe even as Ruth or Naomi, just with a certain gender. And that has led to all kinds of anxieties, abuse, or even divorce can be something that generates a wave in your lives. Our wave can also be one of privilege. It can be generational wealth that's been handed down to us or an education or simply a functional family or even just being born an American. What I want to say in closing is that God's loyal love is not erased by tragedy or circumstances, nor does it mean that um, if, if, uh, if I'm privileged or everything is good in my life, that it means that God is more loyal to you or to me. Ironically, despite the calamities that happen in Bethlehem and Moab, to Naomi and Ruth and their family and loved ones. God intervenes in, their inter- in the aftermath, we're going to see. But don't miss this. He was always there. I think one of the most precious promises in the Bible comes from Jesus when he says, I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. And you know, that is a promise that of, of more than just his presence or eternal life, or I'm there with you. It is a forceful linking with us in our life today. So he, God, is with you right now, where you are. In the mess that you've made, or the mess that you are handed, or even in your wonderful situation. We're going to see how God's redemptive work carries through Ruth, and he redeems Ruth, and through her, others. And he is still doing the same in our lives and through us. There's a cause and effect. Let's pray. God, we thank you for such a great story. Some of it is just like so challenging for us to wrap our brains around and to like insert ourselves into that day and time and everything that was going on. But we're, we're gonna do our best to do that and understand it. And we look, we look forward to the things that you're gonna teach us through the life of this immigrant, widowed, without sons, woman named Ruth. And our hope and our trust is that you will make us a little more like Jesus because of what we learn in this story. Amen. God bless you, Sunridge. We'll see you Sunday. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.